0: This is Cory Doctorow, science fiction novelist and blogger. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons.
1: Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Cary Parker, and today we have episode 348 for October 30th, 2023. And we've got a great, great interview for you today. We're going to be talking with Corey Doctro. I love talking to Corey. He's so fun. And and he has such an interesting turn of phrase and an interesting way of putting things. And just is really smart and knows a lot of stuff. So we're going to get into some deep, deep discussions today about the internet and how we need to save it from itself uh, and maybe capitalism, (laughs) it's gotten kind of out of hand. And Corey's really big on policy and policy wonk stuff. So we're gonna, we're gonna get into the weeds a little bit, but in a very, very entertaining way, I promise you. So before we get into it, there's a couple glossary terms. Uh, I usually like to get those out of the way. So that as as you hear them during the interview, you understand what they mean. Uh, And just a few of the terms we throw out, like red teaming. In cybersecurity, you often talk about the red team and the blue team. The red team is the team that is the attacker. These are the guys pretending to be the bad guys and... Uh, And coming in from the outside and the blue team are the defenders. Uh, They're the ones that are trying to prevent the bad guys from doing what they're doing. So anyway, when we talk about red teaming and blue teaming. uh, That's what we're talking about. He also talks about IP. In this case, Corey is referring to intellectual property uh, because we do talk about copyright and some of these sort of intellectual property topics today. And he also talks about a Turing complete von Neumann machine. So there is actually a lot to unpack in that phrase And it would take me quite a while to actually define that, but just at a very high level, Turing complete is a a reference to Alan Turing, and it's a computer term, meaning that a particular language is kind of computationally complete. I know I'm kind of doing some circular definitions there. It kind of means that the language is rich enough that it is capable of solving problems it's honestly hard to define, and it's something that, I'll be honest, it was never completely crystal clear to me, even as somebody who's been doing software for 30 years. But anyway, if, you're, if you want to learn more about that, look it up. And then a von neumann machine is a kind of a standard computer architecture. You don't really think about it in these terms, but like when you think about a computer and it's got a a central processing unit, it's got some sort of registers that have a program counter and it's got memory and mass storage and input and output. That kind of very generalized idea of what a computer is, is a von Neumann architecture named after the guy, John von Neumann. And again, if you really want to look into that, Wikipedia is your friend here. And finally, he talks about APIs or application programming interfaces. And I've thrown this term around a lot, but I haven't really talked much about it so i just want to briefly say that the importance of having an api means that kind of computers can talk to computers and it also means that a computer is able to accept commands over the internet in a programming kind of language or a machine interpreted kind of way and functionally what that means is when services like say facebook or and the other social media companies and some of these other services that are kind of closed, if they open up APIs, that means that other people can kind of program against their system. In particular, for example, they might be able to make their own clients. TweetDeck, I think, was a a common example of somebody who has written to the Twitter APIs and come up with their own client. And because Twitter didn't like, uh, in particular, I think, Elon Musk, didn't like these third party clients, he shut down the API, at least I think that's what he did, or maybe he made it too burdensome to use either way made it kind of closed it off. So to make something more open and to allow competition and to allow interoperability, having these APIs is a big deal. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today with Corey. Now, one last thing before we get into the interview, there is some cursing. Again, we don't do that often on this program. Uh, I try to avoid it where possible, but I also don't squelch it. It's part of conversation as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, if that's a problem for you, here is your trigger warning that there will be uh, some cursing in today's interview. So (laughs) with that as your setup, let's get to the interview with Cory (laughs) Doctorow. Corey Doctorow is a science fiction author, activist, journalist, and blogger at the site Pluralistic. He has written a whole bunch of great books, uh, both fiction and non, including Little Brother, Red Team Blues, and Choke Point Capitalism. Uh, welcome back to the show, Corey.
0: Hey, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure.
1: So I, I had to look back. It's It's been like three years since you were here, so that's that's too long. Yeah, feels we have like to... <laughs> hardly more than two years and 11 months. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right so you've uh, you've been a busy boy since we last talked uh, catch us up on some of the stuff you've uh, you've been doing some of the books and whatnot
0: yeah so the the key thing to understand is that i write when i'm anxious and so <laughs> i came out of lockdown with eight books in production wow and so i think i was last on to talk about attack surface is that right yeah that, that's okay. about right So since then, I published a book called Choke Point Capitalism with my friend and colleague Rebecca Giblin, a copyright expert from the University of Melbourne, about how uh, creative labor markets are captured by both tech and entertainment and how creators can't get a better deal by siding with one giant or the other, but instead need to have an orientation towards breaking free of control of, of either one of those heavily monopolized sectors. And um, the most notable thing about that book, and it relates to the approach that I took in the book we're going to talk about today, is that the entire second half of that book are structural systemic solutions that are designed to be grabbed onto and mobilized. When crisis emerges and people say something must be done, because right now, whenever a crisis crops up, we just do the same thing we did last time, only harder and hope for a better outcome. And so this is about creating what my arch enemy Milton Friedman called (laughs) ideas lying around, you know, as in in times of crisis, ideas lying around can move from the periphery to the center Mm -hmm. and the impossible can become the inevitable. And so it's about having a better policy debate so that when the crisis comes, we don't waste it. The book that came out after that is a novel called Red Team Blues. This is the first of a, a at least a trilogy, probably more, about a 67-year-old forensic accountant in Silicon Valley called Marty Hench who uh, has spent 40 years unwinding every scam that every tech bro in Silicon Valley has come up with. Uh, This is his final adventure. He's he's about to retire, and there's one last job, and it's unwinding a cryptocurrency scam, because, of course, that's the scammiest of all. And uh, it's a book that is meant to be read in one sitting. In fact, Molly White from Web3 is going just great, says, if you start it at night and you've got a meeting in the morning, you're screwed, because you're going to end up staying up as late as it takes to finish it. And there are two more of those coming out, but the the novel, uh, the novel next novel that I've coming got coming out is in November, it's called The Lost Cause. It's an eco-thriller about a world where we have a Green New Deal, but where there's a backlash as the administration that enacted it has been pushed out in favor of a uh, right-wing one, and we're seeing far-right militias and uh, world-wrecking plutocrats on seagoing flotillas joining forces to roll back the, the only hope humanity has of a better future. And then the book that we're going to talk about today is called The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, and it's a new book from Verso, and it's a book about how tech got as concentrated as it did and what we should do about it. And it follows some of the approach that we took in um, Chokepoint Capitalism in devoting itself not just to explaining how the scam works, but what policymakers should do to unwind the scam. And in, invites the reader to become part of the solution by making these some of the ideas that we have lying around. All right, so uh, you know this is a
1: little bit outside the, the wheelhouse that I only talk about, but I think it's important to understand the you know the business models for social media because social media obviously is a, a huge issue when it comes to privacy and things like that, and so
0: and even security when you really follow it down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so sure, sure. Um, I mean you don't get fished without social media. So right, right, and, and you know I I think that there is. A lot of what this book involves is security analysis. It's about how interoperability works, what security defects are opened by interoperability, to what extent delegating control of your devices to large corporations is good for security and what the flaws are and how to get the best of both worlds. So it really is a very InfoSec informed account of how um, we can make a better internet.
1: All right. Well, I was introduced to, to a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today through a really great blog article you wrote that that, that coined a term that that I have been longing to say on the air, and that is inshtification. So,
0: so <laughs> sure. Uh,
1: why don't we start with that? What is inshtification, and how does it work?
0: Yeah, and maybe maybe not only how does it work, but what should we do about it? Because that's that's the oh, we'll nature get there. of the book. Well, let's, yeah. let's start with how it works. Okay. So the thing we need to understand is that. While the internet was born with a promise of disintermediation, where we take away all those middlemen that sit between producers and consumers or audiences and performers or just friends or communities and, and sit between them and mediate between them and control them. And while we did disintermediate a lot of those old intermediaries we re-intermediated everything (laughs) that the the dominant form of the internet is the platform. And a platform is just a fancy word for an intermediary (laughs) because what a platform does is it sits between end users and business customers with Uber, that's drivers and riders with Amazon, it's sellers and buyers with, uh, um, uh, Google it's searchers and publishers and with, um, Facebook, it's users and advertisers as well as publishers. And, um, when platforms are, uh, exist in a condition where they are neither regulated nor have any meaningful competition, they decay. And that decay follows a three-stage process I've called inshittification. And in the first stage of the process, the platform has some surplus, This is what economists, uh, the jargon economists use to describe like goodies, Hmm. like things that the platform can give away without failing. So in many cases, that's just the investor's capital. So like you think about Amazon selling stuff below cost when it started or, you know, Uber lit $31 billion on fire (laughs) over 13 years, mostly Saudi royal money, losing 41 cents on every dollar it made on every cab ride. And so, you know, an example I like to use in this case is Facebook. So Facebook's surplus when it began was that it had investor capital and it didn't have to do anything that its audience didn't like in order to make money from them. It could just give them everything they wanted. And in Facebook's, Facebook's case, they went to these MySpace users, which was like everyone using social media. <laughs> right. And they said, you know, we know you love MySpace, but did you realize that it's owned by a senescent, crapulent, evil Australian billionaire named Rupert Murdoch and that he spies on you with every hour that God sends – come to Facebook, we will never spy on you. And if you tell us who matters to you in this world, we'll just show you everything that they publish for public consumption. We're just going to give you a wall of posts Mm. from the people you love and nothing else, Mm. right? And um, once those users get locked in, The platform is now free to start treating them worse in order to make the business customers better. So every platform is a different way of locking in users. You know, with Amazon, there's a lot of different stuff. But like the big one is pre-selling you a year shipping in advance. Right. People, 90% of Prime users start their shopping on Amazon. And once they, if they find what they're looking for, they stop right and so that that becomes a kind of lock-in you know there's another kind of lock-in that follows on its heels which is that all the businesses that aren't amazon fail and so now you have to shop at amazon but you know with social media there's a very special way that people get locked in which is that we take each other hostage so if you've ever <laughs> been to like the last time i saw you was a Con, and yeah. if you've ever been at a big con with a bunch of friends and you know you're sitting around around six o'clock everyone's getting hungry and you're like let's go get something to eat it could take you till 10 o'clock to decide where, (laughs) right? right? And when it's like 150 people on the same social media platform, and uh, when each of them is bound not just to their friends, but like their customers or communities that matter to them, you know, maybe they have a rare disease and that we would have to convince everyone else who has that disease to leave the platform because they're in a community for that. At that point, it's effectively impossible to leave. You have this incredible collective action problem, another term from economist jargon, And if you leave, you will have to pay a very high switching cost. That's another Mm. economist term, and it's pretty self-explanatory. It's everything you have to pay when you switch. So um, that's uh, stage two arrives once the users are locked in. And again, to think about how it arrived with Facebook, where surpluses were withdrawn from users and give to business customers. You know, Facebook went to its advertisers, and they said, hey, do you remember when we told these rubes that we weren't going to spy on them? (laughs) We were totally lying. We are now spying on them from asshole to appetite. And uh, if there's any way you want to target these people, we'll target them for you. And like we've got a building full of engineers who are going to prevent ad fraud. So if you buy an ad, someone's going to see it. Right. To publishers, they went, hey, do you remember when we told these groups? We were only going to show them the things they asked for. We were lying about that, too. (laughs) Just post snippets of text from your website along with a link, and we will non-consensually ram it down the eyeballs (laughs) of people who never asked to see it and create a giant monetizable traffic funnel for your website. So it's locking in now these, these two different groups of business customers by giving them a really good deal. And then it starts to alter the deal. And digital is great for altering deals (laughs) because digital is so flexible that you can change the deal from moment to moment, second to second. You can change the deal differently for every user based on your prediction about how they'll respond to the new deal. So like, um, you know, take Uber again, Uber drivers, they're, you know, the business users of of Uber and they sort themselves into pickers and ants. So uh, a picker is someone who's picky, an ant is someone who takes every ride. And Uber wants the pickers to be ants, right? Because like an ant drives around all day, whether or not they've got a fare, not costing Uber a penny, Mm, putting wear mm -hmm. and tear in their car, using up fuel and not getting any uh, income. And the more ants there are, the easier it is to get a ride. And so the more riders there's going to be. Because if you page an Uber and it takes 45 minutes, you're not going to page an Uber next time, right? So they want as many ants as possible. It's a way of subsidizing Uber shareholders. So for um, those pickers, they get offered more per mile than ants. And Mm. once you start to step up how many rides you take and become less selective, the rate per mile starts to go down automatically. But... If you go, go like, hey, this isn't worth my while anymore, and you become more selective, the rate goes up again. Now, that's oh. not a thing even the most kind of wicked coal boss, you know, in a Tennessee <laughs> Ernie Ford song could have done. Not because he didn't want to, right? He just <laughs> right. didn't have the facilities to make that happen, right? Right. And so the digital deal gets altered from, from moment to moment. So with advertisers, they you know, Drew, drew uh, Facebook um, draws down its uh, anti fraud. They start to increase the prices, so you're paying more to to show ads that are being shown to fewer people. With publishers, they like turn the dial on how much of your content you have to put in the post before the post gets suggested oh, uh, to people. So you have to become more and more of a commodity supplier. And in the end stage the publishers are li- are told you have to put the whole post up and we can't tell if the link that you add at the bottom is a quote-unquote malicious link. So if there's a link back to your website mm. where you monetize your users, we're not going to show it to anyone. <laughs> and then in the final stage with those publishers, it's like even if you put the whole post up and don't link to your website, if you want your subscribers to see, you're going to have to pay to boost it, right? So this is the kind of thing that you can do. It's I call it the Darth Vader MBA, right? I've altered <laughs> the deal. Pray don't alter it further. <laughs> right, right, right. And, yeah. and there's so much scope for that kind of conduct in digital. And so um, – over time, they start to extract the surpluses from those business customers too, and the equilibrium they are trying to strike is a world in which there is just enough surplus that the users are locked in, and just enough user or enough users that the business customers are locked in, and um, no extra surplus that isn't clawed back and allocated to shareholders because that's the idea the shareholders do all that subsidizing in the beginning to get paid back on the back end and so they want as much money extracted from it as possible but that equilibrium of nearly so bad that everyone quits but not quite so bad that everyone Mm -hmm. quits that is like a super brittle equilibrium right it just takes like in the case of facebook like a cambridge analytica scandal a live stream mass shooting um uh an effective competitor like tiktok a whistleblower like francis haugen And the next thing you know, people go from like, I hate this but I can't leave it to Jesus Christ why did it take me so long to leave I'm out of here right and when yeah. that happens you get into the final stage so there's really not just three stages there's three stages and an end stage and the end stage of of inshittification is what tech bros call pivoting but it's really panicking <laughs> and in the case of Facebook the panic goes uh we're not a social media platform anymore we are a uh, a place where the human race is doomed to live out its days as legless sexless low polygon heavily surveilled cartoon characters in a virtual world we stole from a 25 year old cyberpunk novel right and that's like what happens when it just finally goes to shit and we are living at a key moment right now because all the platforms are rug pulling right we are living through the InShitternet, net the great InShitting, where everything that we rely on whether it's like unity or reddit or uh you know ebay or uh even red hat Right is just turning into a pile of shit that's not fit for purpose, and they're all betting that we'll just keep using it because there's nowhere else to go. Like you know, like Lily Tomlin used to say in those old SNL sketches, "We don't have to care. We're the phone company."
1: <laughs> right, right, right. So, okay, so you said the last the stage is dying, and I could certainly see where Facebook is. I mean, they took a big hit, uh, and 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 they're not what they used to be, but they're not dead yet. You know, I'm not dead yet, right? So. Has anybody has anybody gone through the full phase with this? I mean, you say that the
0: last age is dying, but who are there any yeah, examples of ones actually dying? I mean, dying they're yet? not really dead yet. But I mean, look at Facebook. Like, so Facebook, it's playing this very dangerous game, right? Because like, Facebook has been in fl- flagrant violation of so many laws around the world for so long, and they have all this capital that they use to stave off enforcement. So, like, Facebook, hypothetically owes every penny it's ever made to the European Union for its ongoing violations of the GDPR, (laughs) right? And it's only by, like maintaining the pretext that it's headquartered in Ireland, where the data commissioner is this like useless twit who, you know, <laughs> barely gets out of bed. And when he does, he doesn't put on pants, just sits around in his underwear, eating breakfast cereal and watching cartoons, <laughs> right? Th- th- that they're able to stave off this enforcement, but the less money they have, the harder it is for them to keep that stuff at bay mm. and the swifter the retribution will follow. Not only that, but you know, a lot of what Facebook has going for it is what the other tech platforms have going for them, which is that people are scared to try to commit Compete with them, hmm. you know. Think about uh, uh, Google, right? Google's in front of the court with the DOJ right now over the money that it spends to be the default search, right? right? Yeah. 45 billion dollars a year like they buy and destroy an entire twitter's worth of money uh, in order to make sure that you never try a search engine that's not google now maybe it's because they're like deeply committed to keeping their customers happy and they know those other search engines are terrible and they don't want you to be disappointed but i think the reality is that they really worry that if you could try another search engine you would and if you did you would switch like 60% 60% of Americans said that if Apple had a search engine, they'd switch to it. Hmm. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that they're giving Apple like $18 billion a year not to start a search engine, you know, for that default placement in Safari and iOS. Right. right so, right. you know, it's it's uh, that's that's how that's that's the only reason we don't have an Apple search engine. And it's not just Apple. I mean, there's so many companies that could have entered the market or have tried to enter the market only to be clobbered because there's no market oxygen because Google has sucked it all up with its investor capital. Well, what happens when, like, Google can't afford to maintain that default status mm-hmm. or when mm-hmm. a court tells them that they can't? Because Google search, like, I don't know if you've noticed. Oh, it's horrible. Google search <laughs> is shit. Yeah, it's horrible now. Oh, my God. And they're, like, and they're, they're thrashing. So, like, they, they laid off 12,000 engineers. And at least some of them must have been doing security for search because anti-fraud in search is mm. so bad right now. Uh, I don't know if you saw, like, about a month ago, every airline with a U.S. office had its uh, knowledge box, search result, phone number changed to a scammer's phone oh, number. Oh,
1: no, I missed that. Where, right. I missed that.
0: Wow. called it to book a plane ticket oh, or change geez. your ticket, they took your credit card and stole all your money, right? So, you know, Google's quid pro quo all along was like... Um, you know we're we're like let us be the monopoly search carrier give us hundreds of millions of dollars in in excess rent or hundreds of billions of dollars in excess rents and we will be like wise stewards of the entire internet and keep you all secure mm, here right, in our right, our right, yeah. world garden and boy, oh boy, they failed, right? And, and that keeps happening everywhere. So again, back to your theme about InfoSec, you know, this paternalistic view of InfoSec, what, what Bruce Schneier calls um, the feudal security model where you move inside a walled garden operated by a warlord and uh, they promise to keep you safe. Not only do they fail on those terms, but, you know, the minute the warlord decides that you've got something they want, that walled garden becomes a prison. And the security engineers that they've hired to keep you safe from the bandits outside the walls become mercenaries whose job it is to keep you from leaving. And, you know, that ends up harming every user. we have talked about the networking effect, which is, you know, that is everybody. You know, I'm
1: on Facebook because everybody else is here and I'm not leaving because everybody's still here. And, and it's so true. I've hit that wall so many times where I've wanted badly to bring my family members or friends out of one of those things to somewhere else. And and I can't convince them on where to go. The example of the going to dinner thing is perfect. So you've often advocated for interoperability to address this dilemma. Um yeah. but have there been any working examples of that where that where interoperability has broken the inchidification cycle? Like for example, I don't I don't see a lot of people going from Facebook and Twitter to Mastodon.
0: Oh yeah, well it's because they're not interoperable, right? Mm-hmm. And when we've had interoperability, it in fact has been an engine of enormous innovation, user rights. And also a source of discipline for firms that understood that if they wanted to bundle a thing that a user wanted with a thing that a user didn't, that the thing that the user didn't want, they could modify the service so that they only got the thing that they wanted. So an example of that would be like, do you remember pop-up ads? Oh, yeah. And and pop-up ads, you know, they were at one point, you know, they were everywhere. I was running a web publisher at the time. I was, I was one of the, I still am one of the owners of Boing Boing. And... We would get, you know, advertisers who'd say, like, you serve a pop-up ad or we don't do business with you. Right. And the way that that got fixed was that browsers started to bundle in pop-up blockers. Yeah. And then we could go to those publishers and say, you're the boss. We'll we'll serve the ads you tell us to serve. But I tell you what, uh, if it's a pop-up ad, no one's going to see it. And so they just went away. Right. So like in this cut and thrust, this dynamic of give and take. It lets the users say, I'm not going to take it, right? It turns these pre-feast menus to go back to going out for dinner. It turns the pre-feast menu where every course is set into an a la carte where you say, oh, I'll take this, but not that. I'll take the good part, but not the in shitification." So here's some examples, right? IBM, uh, the IBM 360 mainframe. One of the greatest computers ever built. We've all read the Mythical Man Month. It is a legendary computer. Yeah. And IBM sold hard drives at ten thousand percent markups, <laughs> and so people who had IBM mainframes but didn't want to spend ten thousand percent markups on their mass storage, they uh bought Fujitsu plug compatible ones. And plug compatible is just like another way of saying interoperable. Right. And not only that, but. You know, when the Apple Mac was endangered in the early 2000s because Microsoft was either deliberately or, you know, due to its own incompetence, refusing to release a decent version of Mac Office. So that if you were trying to collaborate with Windows users using Mac Office, the files they sent you either wouldn't open or if they did open, they'd be corrupt. Or hmm. if they weren't corrupt and you saved them, they couldn't open them. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, you know, yep. it was the most cursed piece of software. I was a CIO <laughs> yeah. back then, and like you could just wave the Mac Office install floppy at a computer, and <laughs> all the files on it would go corrupt. Right? Just, yeah. just garbage software. Yeah. And you know, as a CIO, I was going to my designers, and you know, the CEOs, the people who like either needed a Mac or wanted a Mac. And I was putting a PC on their desk next to their Mac so they could Hmm. just get office files. It was like an office workstation. And that was unwieldy. So I just put a big graphics card in that Windows machine and bought like Quark and Adobe for it and threw away the Mac. Right. And Steve Jobs, he saw what was happening. He didn't like beg Bill Gates to make a better version. Instead, his, his techies reverse engineered Office, and they made iWork, Pages, Numbers, and Keynote, which perfectly read and write those read and and wrote those file formats. And when Microsoft tried to alter those file formats so that they would no longer be compatible, which is a thing that came at an enormous expense to Microsoft because they mm-hmm. kept having to re-release versions of Windows uh, Office because they were making introducing incompatibilities. Apple just had the engineers on staff that went back and continued the this uh, reverse engineering work uh, in the end, Microsoft sued for peace. I mean, the reason there's that X at the end of your Microsoft file formats PPTX, XLSX, right. DOCX is because they took it to a standards body and made XML versions, and that's why you can copy and paste, uh, you know, style text out of a Word file or a GDOC or a, a LibreOffice file or or a Pages file and into a web form or or any other uh, environment, and it can just parse the style data because it's XML, right? It's how it's how like. Slack is converting your style text to mark- markdown, all that stuff. It's all, it's all coming out of the, that document XML. And then even more recently, when Facebook got started and they, they went from being a service for American college kids that you needed a .edu address for to being a service open to the general public, you know, and it, they had a, a, a real problem, which is that their users were all stuck to MySpace and, you know, it wasn't just their pitch wasn't just like Rupert Murdoch's a dick. We'll treat you better because, you know, coming and sitting all on your own on MySpace without, uh, you know, any of the people you care about, admiring the superior user interface and the fine print and the privacy policy is not a pitch that is going to get any users over to your new social media service. So instead they created a bot. You gave that bot your login and password. It would go over to MySpace, pretend to be you, scrape out the messages waiting for you, stick them in your Facebook inbox, let you reply to them, autopilot the back out to MySpace and stick them in the outbox. And that meant that you didn't have to solve the collective action problem. You didn't have the switching cost. You could eat your cake and have it too.
1: Well, of course, now they've blocked all that and they've put it in their terms of service that no one else is allowed to do that to them, right?
0: Yeah, so they've not only blocked it technically, which whatever, right? I, I'm a believer in the red team, right? Like they have to, they have to make no mistakes. The we just have to find one uh, right. error and exploit it in order to reverse engineer and make an interoperable product. But they've made it illegal, right? Like, so that's what's really changed. If you were to do to any of these companies what they did to their competitors (laughs) back in the day, they would bomb you till the rubble bounced, right? They would say you violated Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, that you were a tortious interferer with contract, a patent violator, copyright violator, a trademark violator, that you were violating trade secrecy, non-compete and non-disclosure, all of this stuff that we just lumped together as IP, but which Jay Freeman calls felony contempt of business model.
1: Google has gotten horrible. And it's not that... Actually, I'm not sure if the search results themselves are bad. You just don't get to see them because it, like, it, like the first page of everything you see is not what you asked for. It, it's right. thing
0: I think it's a little of both. I think... I, I, I go to page two and three and four and it's still crap, so... <laughs> so, okay. So do we have any idea at this
1: point, like, What percentage of the stuff that we see in these platforms uh, for, for, you know, in our daily feeds or in search results for search engines is actually what we asked to see? And how hard is it to tell the difference? Because there's a lot of this malvertising banks on the fact that you can't tell them apart.
0: Yeah, well, it's hard to say in part because of that flexibility of digital. So it may be that each of us sees a different quantum of garbage in our results. And, you know, I, I, I describe this digital flexibility as the power to twiddle. Right? There's lots of knobs on the back end that you can twiddle in these services to change the proportion of ads, the extent to which um, your own internal house products are shown over top of third-party products, the payout for different kinds of performers or creative workers or gig workers. All of this stuff is like um, very flexible on the back end. And hypothetically, all that flexibility also accrues to those of us on the front end, right, who might want to reverse engineer it, ad block it, you know, imagine you could you could very easily imagine a tool where lots of Uber drivers signed up for it that tried to look at the payout schedule for Ubers and like at what rate you had to refuse jobs to keep the payout level as high as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, I mean, we see that all the time. That's all high-speed trading bots do, right? Is they It's bot-on-bot right. bot yeah. warfare, right? But you can't, right, because of that felony contempt of business model stuff. And so what we have in this world where tech companies, um, because of changes in antitrust law, have been allowed to merge to to monopoly. You know, Tom Eastman says, I'm old enough to remember a time when the web wasn't five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. Right. And when you look at how these companies grew, it wasn't by making products that everyone loved. It was by buying products from other companies, meanwhile, failing to make any products in-house. You know, Google, great search engine 25 years ago. Everything else they make in-house has failed, right? Google Video, all those social media platforms, the smart cities thing, even their RSS reader crashed and burned, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, mobile, ad tech, server management, Docs, Maps, uh, you name it, Google bought it from someone else. I mean, that was videos. the business
1: model for a lot of these companies. Now is that yeah. they have no intention of going public; they they intend to be bought.
0: Right, and so yeah, so you know, when you look back on the on the history of of antitrust. Prior to the mid 70s, the Carter administration, those kinds of acquisitions would have been illegal. They were made they were increasingly tolerated under uh, first Carter uh, who did it in little bits and pieces and then Reagan, who you know, pulled Jenga blocks out by the fistful. And then every administration since has been incredibly solicitous of monopolies and tolerant of them right up until the Biden administration, which has seen a, a complete reversal, which is quite hopeful, I think. And I don't think that's like necessarily indicative of the overall character of the Biden administration, but like if you think of the Biden administration as like a series of compromises brokered between different wings of the Democratic Party, the kind of Sanders-Warren wing that wants to see Mm -hmm. corporate power blunted got to choose the antitrust enforcers. Unfortunately, the Manchin wing got to choose the judges. And so we're seeing cases being brought by these antitrust enforcers in front of Biden judges who are you know knocking them back like the Activision Microsoft merger right. but it's 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 you know the, the point here is that we lost the choice right we lost the 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 variety of services that we could go to that might offer us a better deal and that as these companies grew very concentrated they found themselves without that collective action problem that you have when you try to pick where to go for dinner. Because when there's like five companies in a sector, they can all agree on what they want. You know, if you remember the Napster Wars, when there was like 100 mini tech companies whose overall economic activity was like 10x the entertainment industry, but there were like seven entertainment companies that in aggregate were 10% of the size, but they all agreed Mm. on what they wanted. And they kicked tech's ass, right? Over and over again in every conceivable way and in every conceivable forum, not because they had more money to spend, but because they all agreed on how to spend it. And so as tech grew as concentrated as entertainment was, as it got even more concentrated than entertainment was, it was able on the one hand to make sure that we never got laws that restricted their twiddling. So we effectively don't apply privacy, uh, labor, or consumer protection laws to tech. Right? I, I mean, you talked about malvertising and beyond malvertising, you know, there's this $31 billion Amazon advertising business that isn't advertised, it's just payola, it's <laughs> merchants paying money. Right. To put things that don't match your search query over the things that do, (laughs) right? Lookalike products, products that aren't even lookalikes to make it hard for you to figure out what you're looking for, which is why those results are all, um, you know, low quality products from companies whose names are all consonants. uh, Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. They look randomly generated. They probably are. Yeah. They probably are. And they're spending all their money on advertising. And, of course, that way they don't have to spend money on the product, right? So that's why their products are worse. That you can either spend the money on the product or the advertising. They're spending it on, on search placement. Uh, and so there's, there's no restrictions on how much the companies can twiddle. They can rip us off. They can abuse our labor. They can invade our privacy. And we don't have any recourse. And then anything that we do technically to challenge them, scraping, bots, reverse engineering, all of that stuff, all of our twiddling, Is prohibited, and so like if you think about the difference between open and closed platforms, this is the key difference. It's not, you know, I know the free software movement likes to characterize the difference between open and closed platforms as how much work you have to do to make an interoperable tool, right? You know, how much reverse engineering you have to do. I think there's a much more profound difference, which is whether or not you go to jail for trying. (laughs) Sure. Right. (laughs) So like you can make an ad blocker for the web. It's an open platform. If you wanted to make an ad blocker for an app. The first step, which is bypassing the DRM so you can decompile the app, that's a potential Section 1201 violation of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that carries a $500,000 fine and a five-year prison sentence for a first offense. Right. Right? So all an app is, is it's a web page skinned with an FIP to put you in jail if you try to add an ad blocker to
1: it. And that's it. literally what they, a lot of them are. They're
0: electron apps. They're web apps with the wrapper. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, anything that you skin with a mo- one molecule thick layer of DRM or stick a term of service in front of or do anything else that allows you to, to kind of stretch an IP tripwire in front of the product allows you to criminalize conduct that your shareholders disprefer, even if Congress never explicitly said that that, that, that conduct was unlawful. And even if it is lawful, right? So, like, every audiobook sold on Audible mandatorily comes with audio- Audible's DRM. So, I'm a novelist. I make my own audiobooks because I retain the rights. So I hire actors like Will Wheaton to re- read those audiobooks uh, and yeah. fancy studios and I market them myself because I get to keep the money from it. It's great. But if I sold it on Audible, then every copy of my audiobooks that you bought would be locked forever to Amazon's platform. And I I as the man who wrote the book, paid the actor and created the the audiobook, I cannot authorize you to remove the DRM. Only Amazon can. Amazon, whose sole contribution to that work was doing a file conversion and sticking it in a CMS and processing a payment, has more rights under copyright than I do, as the author and proprietor and financier of that copyrighted work. Well, and so,
1: and we don't think about it, you know Amazon going away because it's so huge. But there's a lot of cases where this where this DRM is put
0: in place, and then the company goes under, and then you're screwed. Sure. Well, or the company, I mean, a better version is the company just changes its deal right back to the Darth Vader MBA. <laughs> Amazon started sticking ads in some of its audio They say it's a pilot program. But like if you want to put ad skipping in and they say, well, the only players will license have to turn off ad skipping during the ads, then um, you can't do it. Right. So like you as the listener, as the customer are forever at the mercy of whatever features the company wants to take or remove. And this has been evident since the earliest days. I mean, this is this, there are lots of times where companies decide they were too generous in the features (laughs) that they gave you to begin with. And so even though you bought a thing with six features, you're only going to have five from now on. Like, when iTunes first launched, it had this feature where you could share um, your music with any other instance of iTunes that was registered to you right. anywhere in the world. So you just gave it the IP address of another iTunes instance that you were logged into and you could share a library. And then one day they were like, actually, it has to be in the same subnet as you. And and that's just pure Darth Vader shit, right? Like they they... Made an offer to you, they sold you things on the basis of that offer, and then they changed their mind. Just like all those printer manufacturers that ship oh, you God, fake yeah. security updates that are actually just an right. update to catch some, some uh, mod chip so that they can detect and reject third-party inks.
1: Well, and what's killing me now is the cars are doing this. Tesla is doing this with its a lot of its software sure. features. They're built in. The capabilities there, but you're paying for them.
0: The heated seats.
1: What was it, BMW who did the BMW. heated seat
0: subscription? Yeah.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. That's and Tesla,
0: if you buy the service, so not even as a subscription, right? If you buy a feature from Tesla, they disable it when you sell the car. <laughs>
1: <Of> so that's, <laughs> like, that's
0: like paying for a paint job before you sell your car. <laughs> but when you take it to the dealer, the old paint resurfaces through the new paint you paid to have put on it. <laughs> Right or installing a stereo before you sell your car and having the the old stereo reinstalled by the manufacturer and the stereo you put in repossessed before you sell it.
1: Well, you say that these things, you know, that there is a reverse engineering that still happens. It's called search engine optimization. And there's a whole bunch of companies out there that claim to be able to do it, and there's there's groups that actually go through. Sure, the effort. bad
0: guys can do it. <laughs> well, the right was... ba- you mentioned yeah, this group it, called
1: tracking exposed what was and they're great
0: yeah so tracking exposed is a little european collective and they um they let you run a, a plugin that gathers telemetry about how the um algorithm is uh so, is recommending things to you and they try to reverse engineer it and help uh different kinds of um people who rely on algorithmic recommendation systems For their living, like think about performers on YouTube or TikTok or sellers on Amazon to understand what it is the algorithm is preferencing and dispreferencing. But as a user, they also give you a tool that lets you replace the suggestion engine with a multi-platform one. So you can run their... um, their suggestion engine and when you watch a youtube video when it's over it'll suggest videos from across multiple platforms mm. to you not just youtube videos based on uh the telemetry it's gathered from you and its own inferences about what you might prefer so it's another way of like kind of decomposing that that um a la carte offer into or that right. uh feece offer into an a la carte menu but in general, you know, uh, uh, the claims that these companies make when they when they block interop, you know, think about Apple saying, oh, you know, if we if we let third parties install apps on here, then they would install malicious apps. Those claims are, are overblown because in addition to blocking malicious apps, they also block apps that are beneficial to users. Right. And then they often fail to block malicious apps like not a week sure. goes by that you don't find out about a malicious app in either the App Store or the Play Store or, or both.
1: So one of the things I, the article that I thought was I love the analogy you made was uh, the TikTok's business marketing strategy was like a rigged carny game, and yeah. with the with the guy carrying around the big teddy bear the as giant the draw. Teddy bear. Yeah, give, give us that story because it's it's, sure. it's a great example.
0: Yeah. So this is what occasioned the writing of that article. Um, TikTok, it turns out, has a secret heating tool. Uh, which is what they call the knob they twiddle in order to give you more views. So, like, there's lots of reasons to to dislike TikTok, but the one thing that everyone agrees on, even its sharpest critics, is that it has a spookily good recommendation right. system. Right, <laughs> right. And the idea here, the kind of implicit bargain, is if you let TikTok spy on you, they'll only show you things they think you like. And uh, it TikTok really wants to bring in performers and lock them to its platform right the state stage two here of the certification mm-hmm. cycle uh, and a lot of those performers are already happily ensconced at insta or at youtube or in some other platform and so it wants to lure them in now if you go to a carny and you go to the midway by like 10 in the morning some guy's walking around with a giant <laughs> teddy bear and the way right. you nominally win that teddy bear is by getting five balls in a peach basket but, you know, when you actually see how that guy wins his teddy bear, it's because he was the first one around and the carny said, Hey, mister, mister, come on over here. I like your face. I tell you what, you get one ball in the basket out of these five throws. I'm going to give you a uh, keychain. And you do it twice and I'll give you two keychains and you can trade them in for a giant teddy bear. <laughs> and of course, the carny, like, he's not in the business of giving away giant teddy bears, but he wants one sucker walking around all day with a (laughs) giant teddy bear convincing other people. It's a Judas goat, right? Right. Well, you know, when Spotify gives uh, Joe Rogan $100 million, that's a giant teddy bear. But on um, the other platforms, on TikTok, it's a lot more subtle. What they'll do is say like, well, we need more sports bros on this platform. So they pick some random sports bro and they make him queen for the day, right? They give him 25 million views for an undistinguished <laughs> video. And this guy thinks he's the Louis Pasteur of TikTok, <laughs> right? And he goes around to all the other sports bros and he's like, guys, TikTok is the best place to be a sports bro, <laughs> right? And they all get lured in by this Judas Go, by this guy with the giant teddy bear. I'm still trying to wrap my head around
1: a Louis Pasteur sports bro, but- <laughs>
0: I have TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. So at a certain point, so at a certain point, right, the the, the TikTok goes, well, like, look, you know, users are only going to tolerate so much crap in their feed. And we got other people we need to lure in here. Like we want astrologers on the platform. So we're going to withdraw the heat from the sports bro. And we're going to give it, to the astrologers. We're going to just keep touching our knobs all day long. No one's going to stop us from touching those knobs. And uh, and and now it's astrologers who are piling in. And you know, this is a way that they bring everyone to the platform. And then what they do is they draw down their recommended traffic, but they also can draw down their subscriber traffic. And they can say, Hey, do you want to boost? Do you want to pay to boost? Right. This is this is Musk's thing. Right. If you're not blue. Right. uh, right, You're not you know, your subscribers aren't going to see you. Uh, This is Facebook and Insta. You know, give us 12 bucks a month or pay for programmatic or your own subscribers. The very people who ask to see your posts are not going to see your stuff.
1: One of the other great examples that you brought out, and this is something that blew my mind, was the Amazon Smile program and what happened to it. I was I was in that. I thought, yeah, sure, why not? It's kind of like when they ask you to round up at the grocery store to give to the local charity, right? Yeah, sure, why not? I'll, I'll do Smile. I'm helping someone while I shop. Why not? But tell, explain yeah. what happened there, what was really going on with that program? So-
0: so uh, Amazon, remember, makes $31 billion a year on payola, right? When th- this is like selling search placement to people who don't match your search. Because if someone matches your search, you don't have to sell search placement to them. They're just going to match, right? <laughs> and, uh, and that only works if you search on Amazon, right? If you search on Google... They don't generate those preferential search results. So right. like if you search for a specific SKU on Google, you'll often get taken directly to the Amazon page for that SKU. Whereas you search for it on Amazon, you'll get five screens of nonsense before you <laughs> see that SKU. And that's that's a market opportunity. It's a monetization opportunity for for Amazon. So amazon needed a way to incentivize people to start their search on on amazon rather than google and that was smile where an infinitesimal amount of money would be given to the charity of your choice your kids little league game i chose efs for the record thank you very much (laughs) if you search for your product on amazon instead of searching for it on google and at a certain point their merchants were so locked in and i guess google was so insidified. That they were like eh we don't need to do this anymore we're just we're just like no more smile <laughs> nice all right so uh you talked about
1: the end-to-end principle explain what that is and how that how does that play here
0: yeah so end-to-end was one of the foundational principles in the internet's design and it's, it's it has to be understood in contrast to the um uh, pre-internet model of networking which was uh pac- uh circuit switching where you had a central office that connected lines between different parties. So if you had an endpoint and I had an endpoint, we wanted to talk to each other, we would both contact a central office that would create and then tear down a connection between us. Originally physically with like brushes, right. electromechanical brushes on big frames, but you know ultimately um, virtually with, within a digital system. And um, that had lots of advantages for the central carrier. The biggest one being that it could monetize innovation. Right. And it could control innovation. So if you remember caller ID, mm-hmm. right, uh, 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 when caller ID was invented, finally, you could find it who was calling you before you pick the phone up. But it was like two ninety nine a month. And the only <laughs> right. reason they were able to charge that is that if I couldn't build a caller ID transmission box and give it to you. And put one in at my end so that when I called you, you got a special ring or you got a little bat signal or, you know, (laughs) the LCD would tell you, hey, it's Corey, uh, pick up the phone. And they could control that from the central office and charge us $299. But with packet switching, which is the Internet's model, we had end-to-end networking where the job of the intermediary was to non-discriminatorily make a best effort to deliver all data emitted by any endpoint to any other endpoint that it was addressed to, provided the other endpoint wanted it. So to connect willing senders and willing receivers, right? And that's that's like TCP IP, right? We right. all, we all, we all know and love how that works. And with TCP IP you can't do that, right? If you were gonna say, oh well like your carrier, right, Comcast, wants to charge you two ninety-nine extra a month to look at the from line in your email in a list view before you double click the message and find out who the message right. is from they can't do that right yeah and so they lose 2.99 a month per gmail subscriber for everyone who's got a comcast account right they want to reinstate like the um, you know i call it the urinary tract infection business model where instead of value flowing in like a nice healthy gush it comes in like this painful burning <laughs> dribble with you know a few pennies every time you want to do something <laughs> So end-to-end gave us the internet and it gave us innovation. It gave us user empowerment. It gave us a, a better world than we had under the under the circuit-switched model. And end-to-end is dead at the service level, right? If you want to send messages to the people who follow you or if you want to send an email or if you're a seller who's got a, a true product listing with a, a SKU on it that a buyer is searching for, the intermediaries... The platforms, they will not make a best effort to connect you. If they think they can make money from connecting someone to someone else or for charging you to reach the people who've asked to, to connect to you, they will, right? And the the lack of competition, the free hand that they have in twiddling the knobs... And the restrictions on us twiddling back means that they can get away with it. And it's one of the main reasons that everything on the internet is getting shittier. There's no reason for them not to do this and plenty of reasons for them to do it. So the thing about imposing an end-to-end burden on platforms is it's what uh, us wonks call an administratable remedy. So if we say to the platforms, like, you have to uh, block harassment say Mm -hmm. right well blocking harassment means that we have to decide what harassment is right then we have to decide whether a given piece of conduct by a user rises to the level of harassment Mm -hmm. then we have to decide whether or not the platform took all technically reasonable steps to block it right that could take 10 years right right right? right. it's a that's a that's a again as us wonks say a fact intensive question right (laughs) right (laughs) End to end by contrast like all we're asking is like did the intended recipient receive it Right. Was there a skew that matched the search and was it surfaced? Right. That's a thing that's actually really easy to test. You, you don't need an inquest. You don't need to depose the engineers. You can independently test it yourself. Right. And what's more, it doesn't create what, again, we wonks call a compliance burden. So if we say to platforms, hey, you have to police harassment, then that means that anyone who wants to offer a uh, service to, say, 50 friends needs to make sure that none of those 50 friends are harassing each other and one one friend who gets pissed off at another friend and starts to beef with them can tank the whole enterprise by uh, accusing the the volunteer who's giving them a place to all hang out of you know failing to adhere to this compliance rule right all the by contrast end to end is how all the software is born right, right? like if, if, you know, if you were like uh, applying for a job at Twitter, which you should absolutely not do, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, they would probably like give you a whiteboard and say sketch out the underlying logic for a social media network and that the, uh, the wireframe you would draw of that social media network would be end to end because the stuff where you don't deliver things to the people who ask to see it is extra software you have to write. Right? So like you pull Mastodon down off the shelf or Diaspora, or you write something from scratch, and it's going to start end to end. Right. Yeah. So we're not going to create a regime in which only the largest companies can afford to do it. We're going to create a regime in which there is the, um, you, you don't have to do anything extra. It's only if you decide to do something extra that you come under the scope of the, of the regulatory regime. So it's enforceable, and it doesn't exclude new market entrants. So it's good for competition. All right, so here's
1: now. Let's get to the big questions, and the big one for me is: Is not all this gentrification just a natural result of capitalism? Because the, the the things you're describing are not things you're going to make a lot of money on. But these companies, these public companies with shareholders that are demanding value want these companies to make money. And they see money on the table and they're telling their their engineers or their, the boards who tell the engineers, well, I want you to pick that money up. So what's what's the alternative for a company that wants to actually be profitable and make money and survive in this capitalist society? I mean, can you name a successful company that found a different way? Are there viable
0: counterexamples to yeah, the like gentrification? Google until 10 years ago, Facebook until 15 years ago, Apple until the, 12 years ago probably never Microsoft, but we're not talking about whether companies are profitable or not. We're talking about whether companies are competitive or not, whether they can extract what are called non-competitive rents. Right. The sums of money that they would not be able to get if they weren't able to, on the one hand, have a free hand in buying up their their uh, competitors. So, you know, Google buying up all those third party companies while failing miserably to make anything in house. And on the other hand, not having to worry about regulation. Right. So you're right. Like the people who are running these companies now, they're not worse or smarter than the people who ran the companies before. Right, the the people who ran like Compaq or DEC or uh, AOL, like Steve Case, was a piece of shit. Right, <laughs> like these are not these weren't good people. Right, what they were were people who operated under the constraints of competition and therefore regulation. Mm-hmm. And um, all we're talking about here is installing some discipline outside of the firm, so that the the things the firm can and can't do are determined by democratically accountable lawmakers and by customers exercising choice and not by uh, the ability to mobilize the power of the state to restrict customer choice and to mobilize investor capital to restrict new market entrance.
1: Well, I know that there's always, you know, whenever you mention regulation, a lot of people, like, you know, half the population's hackles go up, you know, like, oh, regulation. Sure. bad, um, Right. But, it, you know, the what I usually say in situations like that is, you know, and Bruce Schneider was, was actually the one I think first said it. Uh, there's a reason why you don't have to personally inspect the plane when you get before you get on it. There's a reason you don't right. have to taste test the food at the at the restaurant before you eat it, or have a poison tester, or or your medicine right. before you take it, right? Because we have regulations, and, we, and therefore people that are smart enough to test those do it for us. Um, the other thing I always say is that no game worth playing with you know outcomes that are important doesn't have a referee and rules, sure. right? I mean, so capitalism to me is a is, is game. It's a gamified thing. So we, right. but we need to have, we need to have some
0: basic rules or it's no fun because well, it's not fair. Say you're the world's most hardened libertarian, right? And all you care about, like when, in the moments that you can like pry apart the stuck together pages of, of your copy of the fountainhead, the only <laughs> thing you're thinking about is the government stepping in to enforce contracts. Well, if the government's going to enforce contracts, it's going to have to be bigger than the companies whose contracts it's enforcing. You can't enforce contracts if you're weaker than the companies mm. you're trying to enforce the contracts against. If, if, if that were the case, then you wouldn't need the government to enforce contracts because the weaker party could somehow use that mechanism to enforce contracts. And so uh, if you want a small government, you should want small companies now, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about here is stuff that is only necessary because we allowed monopolies to form, right? right? Because we allowed things like predatory pricing, selling goods below cost, uh, predatory mergers and acquisitions, neutralizing competitors by, by buying them and, and killing them or integrating them. Uh, and those, that was conduct that we prohibited – and that conduct meant that we didn't have to uh, engage in as muscular a form of regulation because you had uh, market forces that acted on these companies to discipline their, their hand, right? That, that when Microsoft made shitty versions of Mac Office, you didn't need the Federal Trade Commission to step in and, and you know put Bill Gates back on the stand. All you needed was for Steve Jobs to have the right to make a version of Office that was interoperable with Microsoft Office. And now, both Steve Jobs and his successor, Tim Cook, have devoted their lives to making sure no one ever does unto them as they did unto Microsoft. And, and you know, if the argument is that if you stop companies from... Uh, or or if you you permit companies to step in and do interoperable things with one another's products, that you undo the profit margin, then you have to ask yourself, how did we get Google, a company that impersonated a web browser to every server in the world, and Microsoft, a company that was able to use interoperability to make operating systems for a bunch of IBM clones, and Compaq, which made IBM clones, and uh, all of these companies that in their DNA have all of this interop that when they think when they did it was uh, you know progress and when someone does it to them is piracy. So we're 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 getting short on time and I want to talk about like actually what that regulation looks like how we how we that resolve was my these next questions. Question. So yeah.
1: what what does that look like in in our current environment what are the solutions that you're actually sure. recommending?
0: Well, if initiification comes from three forces, right? market concentration Uh, unlimited ability for platforms to twiddle the knobs and a prohibition on us twiddling the knobs, then the answer kind of writes itself, (laughs) right? Undo market concentration, that's going to take a long time. It took 69 years to break up AT&T. Sure. But, but they're starting, right? The best time to have done this was 40 years ago. The next best time is now. And we we are seeing the Federal Trade Commission blocking mergers, seeking to unwind mergers. There's the America Act that's supposed to break up ad tech stacks, uh, which is, you know, to call it a bipartisan bill is is to, like, deeply undersell it because the two major sponsors are Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz. That, oh, wow. That's pretty yeah, dang Put those guys bipartisan. together. Anything, any other issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we should do that. But with tech, we have this exceptional quality, which is the universality of tech, right? The the interoperability latent in universal uh, Turing complete von Neumann machines that can run every program we can write. And so, on the one hand, we can constrain the ability of tech platforms to uh, engage in conduct that violates privacy, consumer protection, and labor laws. We can say, you you're allowed to configure your software how you want, but if the outcome of that software is a privacy violation, a labor violation, or consumer protection violation, then you're liable. We can also mandate for the largest firms that have locked their users inside with high switching costs. We can mandate that they support APIs mm. um, that allow for interoperability. And this is what the Digital Markets Act in the European Union is already doing. There's also some of this in the Chinese Cyberspace Act. It turns out that for all the Red Scare talk about how <laughs> like Facebook is defending the West cyberspace from <laughs> evil Chinese tech companies, <laughs> right. like the... Chinese government does not like its tech companies. Like there's a reason they keep rounding up their leaders and sticking them into gulags, right? Like I don't want to put anyone in a gulag, but if you're Nick Clegg telling the European Union that Facebook should be left intact so that it can defend. Uh, europe from from chinese tech companies that are working for the chinese government you have to explain why the chinese government is throwing the leaders of those companies in gulags right like i don't i think they're they're really loyal to themselves not loyal to china uh in the same way that american tech companies are not loyal to america they're loyal to their shareholders and so we could force them to stand up apis but this is one of those things getting back to compliance and, and uh, it, it's, it's going to be really hard to figure out like when Facebook shuts down an API because they say they've noticed uh, someone who looks like they're stealing user data. Right. Like everyone who understands Facebook's infra is a Facebook employee. And so how do you figure out whether they were lying? Because you do want them to shut it down if there's a defect in the API that someone's exploiting, right? And so then we need something to counterbalance it. And that's giving us back the right to twiddle. And so that's creating defenses for interoperators who reverse engineer, who scrape, and who mod, provided that they also respect privacy consumer protection and labor law and i favor a, a legal defense right uh, similar to the way slap laws work mm. where if you're accused of of violating another company's ip you can go to court and you can say i did violate the ip but i did so for uh, purpose that is protected under law, uh, mm-hmm. accessibility, security, usability, interoperability, you know, user kind of rights, fair use, though. transparency. Yeah. And and if you can prove it, then the case gets kicked out. So different from fair use in that fair use is very fact intensive. Mm-hmm. And this, w- this would be something you do in early motions where if you could just satisfy the judge that you were engaged in socially beneficial conduct and that you weren't violating privacy, labor, or consumer protection law, you would have a free hand to do it. So how do we get there? Well, in the end of the book, I I set up a bunch of scenarios where we could do it, um, some of which have come true faster than I thought they would. So the big one is um, as a penalty. So tech platforms cheat like crazy and they can't help themselves. (laughs) And when they do, we get to punish them. And usually the punishments for these really serious laws like um, the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, Europe's privacy law... The penalties are massive they they exceed by several times the total um capitalization of these companies and so they're going to sue for peace right they're going to say what settlement can we get and we can say all right here's your settlement you get a special master it's like what lawyers call a like a babysitter right Right. an adult supervisor who has to clear any lawsuits you bring to make sure that they don't uh that they aren't a pretext for shutting down interop Mm. right and that's something that we would target just to companies that were reckless and lawless now as it turns out like we have a bunch of those, right? Like Twitter has violated every one of its consent decrees, all the laws that it's right. supposed to follow, right? We could start with Twitter. Like Twitter is going to holler for mercy within a year because the Federal Trade Commission and the European Union are going to hit it for billions in penalties for the all the laws that's flouted, all the rules that's flouted. And and so we can just say, okay, well, you, you know, you can keep like and shitifying your service, You can mod your service, you can set up your firewall, you can change your API rules, you can use an intrusion detection system, you can rate limit people you think are scraping. You can have a totally free technical hand, but the one thing you can't do is go to the government and ask them to force someone to stop trying to make your service interoperable. And so now it's just red team versus blue team. What about changing? Part of the problem with with, certainly with monopolies
1: is we kind of change the notion of of the consumer harm being financial harm. What about rolling that back?
0: Yeah, fine. Right. That's another one of the rules they're going to break that we can then intervene to do, because if we say, okay, well, the harms are broader than consumer harms, which, you know, a little inside baseball here. But until the Reagan years, antitrust considered a wide range of harms harms to workers harms to the community to politics and then bork came uh, environmental harms and, th- and then this guy robert bork court sorcerer to ronald reagan solicitor general to richard nixon the origin of the term borked because he flubbed his uh, confirmation hearing for the right. supreme court so badly that now we say that anything that's really screwed up is borked It comes from from good old robert <laughs> bork uh you know that that when, when we change the rule to say that we were only considering uh, consumer welfare, which is to say price and not privacy or whatever, then then we invited a lot of mischief. The FTC and the DOJ have already promulgated new rules that considers a much wider range of harms for antitrust enforcement. But again, those enforcements move slowly. And while it's going to be great to see those brought against airlines and against, uh, you know, hard goods companies and grocers and so on who do all kinds of bad things to us too. With tech, we can do something faster because there's like no such thing as an interoperable grocery store, mm-hmm. but there are interoperable social media platforms, right? We have that flexibility of digital and we should use it to save tech because, you know, for no other reason, having a good tech platforms, having a free, fair and open internet gives us a place where we can organize to do something about all those other corporate criminals who are ripping us off.
1: So as consumers, as citizens, what do you recommend that we do? I mean, obviously vote, obviously stay informed, anything else yeah. more concrete that you would recommend so, that we do?
0: There's not much concrete that you can do as an individual about systemic problems, right? Mm. You can get involved in movements mm-hmm. and, you know, like, um, there is actually like, I don't care what your politics are. There's a big antitrust wing in the Republican party, right? If you're, if you're on the right and you're a member of the GOP, go, f- go f- join that caucus, right? And certainly in the democratic party, there's a big antitrust movement, um, um, and those people, you know, within the party, there's lots of scope for working on this. There are other organizations like EFF and so on that are working for for change. And EFF has a network nationwide of um, Electronic Frontier Alliance organizations, mm-hmm. which are local groups that, that do work that EFF supports. So you can get involved that way. Um, but, you know. The big thing that, that I think is going to make the difference is not concrete. It's, it's ideological. So my arch nemesis, Milton Friedman, the guy who founded the Chicago School of Economics and really is the author of Our Misery, he had a theory about how he was going to get people to roll back all that post-war prosperity and go back to tugging their forelock for their social betters in a new Gilded Age. And it was this. He said, when crisis arises... Ideas that are lying around can move from the periphery to the center. Our job is to keep those ideas lying around so that the impossible can become the inevitable. Tech is lurching from crisis to crisis. There are always crises in tech. And there are so many opportunities where people say something must be done. And if we have nothing but the same stale, stupid ideas that we've had all along, we just do them again harder and hope for a different outcome. But if we're talking about the power of interoperability to save us from things, if we say nobody's using Mastodon, not because Mastodon is a failure, but because you have to say goodbye to Twitter to use Mastodon. You can't send messages from Mastodon to Twitter and vice versa. If, if we make that the focus of our critique when we talk about Mastodon, if we make interoperability the focus of our critique when we talk about all of these companies, then the next time one of these companies gets embroiled in some gigantic scandal, which I guarantee you they will, it's another thing they are just pathologically incapable of not doing <laughs> right. is fucking up, right? And when they do, that is our opportunity to say, right, well, as everyone knows... The problem here is the lack of interoperability. So the answer has to be interoperability.
1: Corey, that was fantastic. Thanks again for coming on the show. We'll have to get you back sooner next My time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Kerry.
1: So there you have it. There's your interview with Corey. I, uh, I, I would love talking to Corey. He's such a fun guy to have on the show. Uh, we will definitely have him back again in the future uh, if Corey is willing and able so I've got a lot of the things we talked about today in the in the show notes, certainly uh, some references to the books that he talked about. Also, the original article that I read about TikTok is the way he wrote it, but it's really about the Internet in general. So if you want to read uh, kind of where this all came from and how this kind of shitification idea got its start, uh, you can read that article. Uh, also, he gave a really great talk at DEF CON this year. I was there for that about this topic. And so I've got a link to the video that has now been posted on the web. So if you'd like to see that, uh, you can watch him give a speech about this or talk about this at DEF CON 31, which was in just this past August. So coming up, I've got some great shows. Our next uh, interview will be uh, with the two co-founders of iVerify. That is a really interesting talk about mobile security. I've got some other great ones in the works, but I don't want to jinx them yet because they're not recorded and in the can. But I've got several things in the works, some very interesting topics coming up. Also got my first deer carry question that actually came with an audio clip. So we'll be doing some Q&A at some point and you will actually hear one of you my listeners actually asking me the deer carry question. So that'll be fun. You could do this yourself of course if you go to fdsd.me/qna, you can find out how to do that there and just submit a regular question if you if you'd like. And I've got lots of those fun links if you want to check out some super cool swag, some merch Go to fdsd.me merch, M-E-R-C-H. And as the holiday season starts approaching, I've got several kind of annual episodes that I do around that time. Uh, in fact, in the next few weeks, I'll be doing my best and worst gift guide for uh, the upcoming holiday shopping season. And then as Christmas and New Year's approach, I'll be doing kind of my retrospective on this year, and I'll look ahead to the next year. I usually have a best of episode where I've got some clips, and this year I think I'm actually going to be including some of the clips uh, that I normally just save for the patrons. Whenever I have a guest, including this week, uh, I get a few extra questions from them, and I do that for my private podcast for my patrons but there's some really, there's some great content there. So I think I'm going to bring out some of that to include in my best of the year episode. So lots of great stuff to look forward to. If you have not subscribed, now would be a fantastic time to do that. And then you won't miss any of that greatness. By the way, I'm looking for recommendations. If you know of some really cool privacy respecting products, let me know and uh, I'll see if they make the cut for the list this year. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Take care, stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, Don't get caught with your drawbridge down.